It's a different world since Hodder Education last hosted 1,500 students and teachers at the Hazard Student Conference in 2019. But great news, they are extremely excited to announce that they are getting the band back together again in November 2022. Inspire your A-level geography students by bringing them along to hear from the expert panel, including Dr. Martin Degg, Professor Fiona Tweed and Professor David Pedley in Nottingham, Manchester and London on the 18th, 23rd and 25th of November. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash hazards hyphen 2022 to explore the full lineup and program as well as the chance to provisionally book your students' places. Welcome to JogPod. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dave Petley. Dave, a professor of geography and earth scientist, and congratulations because you're also now the newly appointed Vice Chancellor of the University of Hull. Hello and thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to this. It's um, You're a, a world leader in the study and management of landslides, which is one of my fascinations anyway particularly understanding landslide mechanics um, and your focus has been on landslides triggered by major earthquakes you've done an awful lot of work in this area you you advise national and international organizations on the management of slopes but the thing I found most fascinating and I do want to talk about this later on it's your landslide blog which, which you've maintained for over 10 years if I was a geography teacher I'd be into that as soon as I started teaching landslides, it's a fantastic resource. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I started it back in, in about 2007, I think, really as a, as a, as a bit of an experiment, um, just to really see whether there was interest in, in something like that. And, and I guess it's nearly 15 years that I've been, I've been running it now. And I, I, I do it for a number of reasons. I mean, one is I, I wanted people to be more aware of landslides as a hazard and impact that they have. It also is, is something that's really interesting about kind of connecting a community. So, so the, the blog is used quite extensively by, by teachers and by, by, um, by pupils. It's also used by the, the practitioner community. It's used by NGOs. Uh, it's used by researchers. And I really like the fact that it kind of brings those different groups together. And then, and then personally, obviously, in the role of vice chancellor, I, I spend most of my day in sort of leadership and management activities. And I write the blog at seven o'clock each morning. Uh, and I write maybe three or four times a week. And it sort of roots me back in my original academic discipline at the start of the day, which is a really kind of positive thing to do. It's, it's There's something about reminding myself every day of, of what it's like to be an academic. I'm really rather disappointed that I'd missed this until now. <laughs> until I started researching for this, I hadn't come across it. And I, I think it's a little, well, it's not a little, it's a gem. I think it's a wonderful gem. Thank you. You mentioned a little bit there about, um, about your new role, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Hull. And it always interests me. Students quite often say, what on earth can you do with geography? I don't want mm. to. But I'm also interested in what on earth gets people into areas like, like you, like landslides. But then what takes them on? How did you get into that area to begin with? And then why have you taken the path that you've taken through innovation with the Advanced Manufacturing Park at Sheffield? Well, just tell us a little bit about how your career has, has, has moved from, from your degree onwards. Well, it's, it's quite strange, really, how, how these things work out. So I, I originally went to university not to study geography at all. In fact, I did a year of aeronautical engineering at Manchester and decided after a year that that wasn't the career for me. Um, and so I shifted to geography at King's College at the end of end of my first year and did, did a second a second go at first year. And quickly found that I just loved the discipline I, I, you know geography I think is fantastic and I mean, one of the great things about geography is is of course the employability of our students is is remarkably high geographers find it very easy to find jobs and, and in a huge diversity of activities in, ter in terms of why I ended up studying landslides well it, that's a funny story too really because I did my PhD University College London in oil reservoir mechanics. I, I, I did uh, experimental rock mechanics, looking at subsidence problems in, in oil fields in the North Sea. But 
getting material to, to undertake my experiments is incredibly difficult. So I was looking for um, material I could access easily that was an analog to what's happening above oil reservoirs in the North Sea. And the, the, best, the best material I could find is a deposit in the, in the very southeastern corner of Taiwan. And so in the summer of the first year of my PhD, I went to Taiwan to, to basically collect some of this material. And, and whilst I was there, a typhoon, a Pacific hurricane, formed out to the to the east of the island and swept in. Now, I, I didn't know anything at all about tropical cyclones, nothing at all. But I, what I did know was that it wasn't a very good idea to be near to the coast. So I, I went up into the mountains thinking that that would be a safe place to be. And it's not. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. But I, I, I was staying in actually in a, in a hut on a, on a mountainside. The typhoon rolled in. And whilst most people think about typhoons in terms of, of wind and, and storm surge, actually most of the damage is done by water and flooding and landslides are a major impact. So as, as I was sitting on this uh, uplifted river terrace, watching the, the rain bands come in, there was this moment when the whole landscape just suddenly switched on. You know, so, so the river was in a massive flood and, and all of the tributary channels were in, in flood as well. And then debris flows started to come down the slopes uh, and there were some landslides happening, especially on the roads as well. And I was, I was sitting in a place that was safe, I should say, watching this happen, just thinking, my God, this is, this is incredible. You know, I'd studied the dynamics of landscapes and suddenly it was all happening in front of me. And I was thinking, gosh, this is just as extraordinary. And when I, when I finished my PhD and I got my first lectureship, which was at the University of Sunderland, I didn't have the equipment to continue my rock mechanics work. So I was thinking, well, you know, what should I do? And I thought, do you know what? What I saw happening in Taiwan was really interesting. So I'd quite like to go and look at that. So I got some money from the British Council. It was, a, it was about 500 pounds. And, and I went and spent um, some weeks in the mountains of Taiwan, you know, studying the landslides, where they happened, when they happened, how they happened. And, and my whole career was based around that moment of seeing the typhoon come rolling in, in the kind of central part of Taiwan. But then you've also moved away from that to some extent. Um, as we were talking earlier, you, you're doing your blog at seven o'clock in the morning because you've taken on a new role at university. At yeah, the... I mean, it, it was it was never my intention actually to to go into leadership. You know, when I, when I became an academic, I sort of mapped out my career as, as 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 being an academic until until I retired. Actually, my my career developed quite quickly, and in my in my late thirties, I was at at Durham and got my professorship. And I was I was asked by the then dean if I would take on a role within the within the faculty of, of social sciences and health at Durham, which was which was basically to build research capacity there. And I, I took that on for you know three years in the first instance to you know just to sort of extend my my experiences really and just found that I I really, really enjoyed leadership roles I really enjoyed kind of convening different research groups and bringing them together and and facilitating researchers across the whole of the institution to do really interesting things you know to, to develop their own activities and there's a role of bringing people from different disciplines together to address a, a you know a grand challenge was something that fascinated me so I've, I pretty quickly realized that that actually research leadership was something I, I enjoyed and I moved on from there to, to become the pro vice chancellor so the strategic lead for research at the University of East Anglia for a couple of years and then and then I was asked to go to Sheffield and do the same role there and that that role evolved over the six years that I was there but in particular I took responsibility for this extraordinary translational research facility that that, that Sheffield has called the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre which is 750 people working on problems with major industries so it has partnerships with Boeing and Airbus and BAE and uh, Siemens and you know and lots and lots of small companies too where essentially they're bringing to the university their manufacturing challenges and and, and we're solving them so I played a, I played a big role in 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 sort of reorientating the activities of that group and 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 making sure that they were really doing the the best thing that they possibly could for our partners um and and from there I was kindly invited to to then become vice chancellor at, at the University of Hull where the vice chancellor is uh is the most senior academic so you know part of my role is about providing that academic leadership but I'm also the chief executive and so so essentially look after an organization that has 14,000 students and 3,000 staff it's fantastic it's, it's, it's I wish just to say that pro vice chancellor for research is the best job in a university but actually vice chancellor is so you're a living example actually of what we were saying about the versatility and employability of geographers 
to be fair. <laughs> yes, and, and, and that, that's true. And I, I, I do think that there's a couple of things that being a geographer has, has enabled for me. I mean, what, one is, is that range of skills that you have. But, but the other is that geography is inherently multidisciplinary. Uh, and of course, universities are collections of academics in a, in a wide variety of disparate areas and the greatest challenge for a vice chancellor in many ways is to is to bring those different groups together so that the sum is greater than the you know than the parts and and, and geographers are just naturally good at that kind of bringing people from different disciplines together i mean because because it is a discipline with such huge variety within it well certainly when you're talking about landslides you're beginning to well not beginning you're involving all sorts of people uh, engineers civil engineers exactly uh, hydrologists um, there are lots of people that come into to that mix if, i have to say if i was a if i was a geography teacher or a student i'd be sitting with bated breath now because i know that i'm in for a 50 minutes of of some really interesting information on landslides and their development i know because i've watched your video <laughs> i know how how good you are at these sorts of things uh, it, it was a lecture at university and and i We'll put a link to this because I think if I was an A-level student now, I'd get such a lot out of watching that if I, if I didn't know it existed. It's called Things Are Going Downhill, Fast Understanding Massive Landslides. And you produced it at Sheffield University. I really enjoyed it. it one of the comments afterwards, one of the, uh, the comments from the audience on the video said, Professor Peckley did an excellent job of making a complex subject accessible and interesting. And I think that's dead right because it made it really accessible and interesting for me. Let's talk about landslides, but let's bring it back to basics. And and just would you give me a, a definition for landslides and and how they occur on such a, a range of scales? Yeah, so I'm, I always think of landslides as basically being the process that happens when a slope collapses. Um, and and it, it, in in essence, that that's what it is. Slopes can collapse for lots of different reasons and in lots of ways. So it's one of the things that's fascinating for me is, you know, at, at one end you have you have rock falls, um, which is which is just a you know a lump of rock falling off a off a steep cliff. Uh, rock rock falls. If if you just think about rock falls as a as a, as a process, they they actually occur on a huge range of scales so you know one scale is actually the height of the of the cliff you know so we get rock falls on coastal cliffs in the uk that might be 15 meters tall but sometimes in in the himalayas or the andes we're dealing with rock falls where where the slope that collapses is is two kilometers tall and obviously the, the volume is is vast and then if you if you think about the sort of damage potential for for rock fall, of course if you get something which is which is 10 million cubic meters coming off a two kilometer high slope anything that's going to be in the way of that is going to be destroyed and, and we have a whole series of, of events where for example hydroelectric dams have been wiped out by rock falls coming from from that sort of height but on a on a coastal cliff in the uk there's actually a really significant hazard of, of people on the beach being hit by by a block and there was a there was a terribly sad case just a few years ago where a, you know a young girl was killed on a beach in the uk by a block that was basically the size of a coffee cup so the damage potential is is still there even though in that case the, the landslide is the scale that would, would basically fit in your pocket but of course rock falls are only one type of landslide and, and we, we get lots of other other types and, and sometimes the cliff simply slumps and doesn't go very far Sometimes when the slope collapses, its material properties change. And in particular, we get through this process that we, we call liquefaction, where, where basically a solid material starts to behave like a fluid. And in those cases, you know, the, the, the collapse might be a few thousand cubic meters, but has the potential to go a long distance and cause enormous dis disruption. So, so one of the things I, think I find fascinating is this kind of range of scales, but also the range of types of, of landslide that, that, that we get and the different ways that they then interact with people to cause damage is something we're only just getting you know, a, a handle on right now. When I first started teaching A-level, and we're talking, oh, crikey, we're talking the early 80s now, there was, there was quite a lot on slopes and slope formation. And I think it's the, it's the essence of understanding landscapes and landforms. Mm. But there's much less now of that sort of work in this, the specifications, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain anyway. I, used, I would go to friends of mine who were civil engineers to have a look at the, the maths that they were using. And I think it's a shame that it's, it seems to have disappeared a little bit at A level. I was having a look, and I, and I, I find less there than they used to be. There's a lot about the mechanism after it's after it's it's fallen and and what we do with it. Yeah. So the hazard and how we deal with the hazard, rather than 
how it actually forms in the first place and why. Yeah, and, and that that is a shame. And and actually, I mean, I came at landslides in the first place from from that perspective. I mean, what really interested me in that Taiwan example was was not so much the process as a hazard. Uh, in fact, in the mountains that I was located, there that, you know there were no people. Everyone moved out during the the typhoon. I was really interested in it as a geomorphological process at, at that stage and. You know, in terms of even understanding the hazard, it is really important to appreciate this kind of concept that we call a threshold slope, which is which is that if you have a, a geological material and you you have a, a set of environmental conditions, you know, so an average rainfall and an average temperature and whatever, then the, the slope will naturally reduce in its gradient until it, it reaches what we call the threshold slope, so, so a typical gradient. So very often, if, we, if you map a landscape on a detailed scale, what you'll find is that for that particular geological material, nearly all of the slopes are the same, the same range of gradients. And, and actually, at its most simple, we very often find that the landslide happens because a, a set of processes have meant that the slope is steeper than its threshold slope. You know, so it's, it, the gradient is too high. And the landslide is basically the natural process that then brings the slope back to its threshold slope angle. So there is a, there is a kind of most basic way of characterizing hazards, which says, well, identify what is the threshold slope angle and then identify all the slopes that are steeper than it and that gives you a pretty good idea as to where the, the landslide hazard is likely to be and a geological process that that causes slopes to you know to, to, to collapse and you know and the, the process that makes it too steep might be erosion of the toe or it might be that humans have cut the slope so it's too steep but that threshold slope concept is very very helpful it does seem that that it's very complex. Um, it's a complex chain of events sometimes. So one thing triggers another, triggers another, triggers another. Uh, that was the, the message I think I got from, or one of the messages I got from watching the video. Yeah, so I mean, if you, if you take the earthquake example, so over the years I've, I've worked quite extensively on, on landslides triggered by, by earthquakes. I mean, first of all, there was a big earthquake in Taiwan in 1999 in the mountains that I worked on. And then I was particularly involved in Pakistan in 2005 and in China in 2008 and then in the New Zealand earthquakes more, more recently. And, you know, I think one of the things that we learned is the way that slopes respond to earthquakes. So, I mean, if you, if you take the the, the Pakistan example. I mean, we saw we saw tens of thousands of slope failures triggered by the by the earthquake, and the landslides themselves were responsible for about one third of the fatalities that happened in in that in that event. And you know that 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 earthquake killed a hundred thousand people. So the landslides really were terrible. But I think it, it's then worth just thinking through sort of two kind of parallel processes that go on. The first is the earthquake damages the slopes and one of the things that alarmed us in the aftermath of the of the Pakistan earthquake was was that all over the landscape we could identify slopes that hadn't collapsed that were very heavily cracked and damaged and people were still living on these slopes and the, the earthquake happened in in October and we knew that this was an area that was affected by monsoon rainfall in the period sort of late June through through the summer. And so the, the big concern we had was that there were huge numbers of people living on slopes that when the heavy rainfall came, we would see collapse. And, and indeed, that did prove to be a problem. And it's something we've seen subsequently in many other earthquake zones. So the first exceptional rainfall after the earthquake drives a second wave of landslides, which are, which are in themselves very, very devastating and extremely hazardous to the people. And that elevated occurrence of landslides happens for years after, after the earthquake. So in the case of Taiwan, we saw high levels of landslides occurring for five years after, after the earthquake. In some of the other cases, Pakistan and China, we've seen elevated levels of landslides occurring for a decade or more after, after the earthquake. So the, the earthquake itself, the, the, the duration of the earthquake actually gets drawn out. The impact of the, of the earthquake on the landscape actually lasts not for the 30 seconds of shaking and then the six months of aftershocks, but actually is, is drawn out for, for a long period of time. And of course, that has a major implication for, for the people. And then the, the second element that's really interesting is, is that, that it, it actually extends the zone of impact of the earthquake into a much larger area. So the sediment that's released by the landslides ends up in the river. And, the, and over the year, the subsequent years, as the heavy rainfall occurs, that sediment then works, works its way down the river out of the earthquake zone, often as a kind of big plug of, of material. And so downstream 
from the earthquake, even in areas that have not been affected by the shaking itself, they suddenly see this kind of vast volume of sediment moving down the river. And so the, the, the geographical area affected by the earthquake becomes, becomes larger. And then I suppose a, a, an additional element that, that we should just think through is, is, is the impact on people. So if you think about the fact that, that this hazard is extended in time, means of course the impact on people is also extended in time so people are still suffering from elevated levels of risk a decade or more after the earthquake happens so again we you know people sometimes kind of think of an earthquake as almost like a you know you see you see those kind of diagrams of of you know of of basically preparation and then the event and then there's a kind of immediate kind of rescue phase and then there's a kind of recovery and then sort of mitigation towards the next event is and of course it's not like that at all it, the earthquake is not a discrete event the earthquake is something that actually happens over a decade because of the landslides occurring over a long a long period of time and in that kind of recovery and kind of reconstruction phase there's actually enormous ongoing disruption from the earthquake because of the landslides why do they take so many years because you talked about the the natural source of slope so we've had an earthquake and it's disrupted that that's caused it to to collapse straight away but four five six seven years down the line what has changed what's the what and what does what do we need to study to understand that risk and how we might mitigate against it yeah and you know my, my research group spent quite a lot of time worrying about that question you know, you sort of think, well, if you've got a big event, wouldn't, wouldn't intuitively, wouldn't you think that basically every unstable slope would collapse in that big event and, and the system would effectively be cleaned out? And so you should, you should, if you think about it in kind of the most simple terms, you might expect that you then see a lower level of hazard, a lower level of events, and then presumably the, the, the kind of the likelihood increasing with time. But actually, we, do, we don't see that at all. And the conclusion we came to is, is that the, the basically you have to think of a slope as a kind of evolving system. And every, every event that happens on that slope causes its properties to change, and in particular, it's, it's conditioned to degrade. So, you know, if you, if you have a small earthquake rather than a really big one, what that, that small earthquake might do is, you know, can introduce stresses in the slope in certain locations, depending on where the shaking is happening, that causes damage, that moves it closer to the point at which it would collapse. And every, every rainfall event that, that occurs, the slope might slip a little bit, might move a little bit, and that's moving it closer to the kind of point at which, the, the kind of threshold at which it, it collapses. The conclusion we came to is if you, if you have a big earthquake, what happens is, you know, and you, you imagine that every slope has a, has a key kind of critical point at which it's going to collapse, and that might be a certain amount of movement on the slope or a certain amount of steepness that's developed. So, so the earthquake basically takes a whole load of slopes that have been prepared by earlier events and pushes them over the edge. And so they, they collapse. But it also takes a whole load of slopes and it moves them much closer to that point, but doesn't get them to the point where they failed. And then the subsequent rainfall events, when they come along, they're just enough to tip the slope over the, over the edge repeatedly. And because an earthquake is so effective at causing damage, it moves lots and lots of slopes closer to the point of collapse. And therefore, you know, the subsequent aftershocks and rainfall events then just tips them over the, over the edge. And over time, what happens is that the population of slopes that have been prepared for collapse reduces because they do collapse. And therefore, we see the, the, the event rate tailing down. So it's a, you have to think about it in a kind of very, very geographical way, a very kind of systems way of thinking about, you know, about basically moving slopes along almost like a, a travelator at an airport, you know, moving you closer and closer and closer to the point where you're at the end of the travelator, and then you, you fall off the travelator or hopefully step off the travelator. In the case of the slope, you know, you move down the travelator and the earthquake moves you much further down the travelator, close to the edge. And then basically every little event subsequently just tips you over. And that's why you get this kind of high event rate occurring in the aftermath. Much of these occur in, in areas that are really quite remote, quite difficult to get to. So when you went to Taiwan, that's you, you went, you did it. But these things are occurring in, in mountain belts all over the place. How do we, how do we map and, and, and analyse that data? How, how are people doing that? Yeah, so, you know, this is, this is true kind of, multidisciplinary science so you know there's been a there's been a vast effort in in recent years that's been focused on on mapping active faults and not just identifying the trace of the fault itself but but also trying to trying to understand the recurrence interval of of the earthquake and the type of earthquake that occurs and so that 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 sort of fundamental work by by geologists and seismologists to understand 
the fault dynamics is is the kind of foundation for where where we start so we can identify the active active faults and the return period and ideally how you know how long it is since the last time that the fault ruptured so that gives us an indication of, the, of where we are in terms of the seismic hazard at that point we can then start looking at the slopes that are in in the zone that's potentially affected by that earthquake and identify what their behavior is going to be uh, and one of the things that's that's come out of the research that that we and other groups have done over over recent years is that that different fault types have different populations of landslides if you get a, a kind of classic thrusting type earthquake we get far more landslides from those than you you, you do if you get a strike slip type earthquake um, so understanding the mechanics of the fault is really important but that knowledge starts to allow you to, to to extrapolate what is likely to happen when that fault ruptures and generates generates the landslides so so we're we're particularly concerned about you know some areas a really good example is is the himalayas where we have a you know a big set of thrust faults on the edge of the of the himalayas that's, that's accommodating the ongoing movement of india northwards into into uh, into eurasia and to, to to generate the himalayan mountain chain that set of faults we know generates really enormous earthquakes and we know that a lot of them are, are close to the point where you'd expect rupture to occur because thrusting type earthquakes generate very dense landslide populations we would expect to see in that high mountain area very very large group of, of landslides occurring so that's an area where we're really concerned about a, an earthquake that would generate you know vast numbers of, of landslides with enormous consequences i'm going to, to i'm going to relate this directly now to um to A-level and A-level students, I, because the, I think you've taken me to the point where I'm going to ask about the direct hazards of earthquake shaking and fault damage, because we've, we've talked about the, the shaking, but the one particular spec, it says, what are the main hazards generated by seismic activity? And students will be listening to you now and then scribbling away while you were... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, people often say... You know, it's not it's not earthquakes that kill people; it's buildings that kill people. And 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 of course, we we do have to recognise that primary impact of of an earthquake is is shaking and shaking damage. And poorly prepared, poorly constructed buildings collapsing are responsible for you know terrible levels of damage and large numbers of of fatalities. And in every earthquake that I've I've worked on, you know, you you see this repeatedly: collapsing buildings causing causing enormous levels of of loss. And of course, if if you're if you're in a in a coastal environment, and in particular with with earthquakes cause large volume change, then tsunami are are a very very significant hazard. And and again, you know, the kind of interesting thing about tsunami is is the way that it extends the hazard out of the earthquake zone into into a, a much larger geographical area. But from from my perspective, you know, obviously the thing that interests me is is slope failure and to a degree liquefaction hazard in mountain environments slope failure is typically responsible for about a third between a third and a half of the fatalities that occur so in that case the you know the adage that it's it's not it's not earthquakes that kill people it's buildings that people kill people isn't quite correct actually it's buildings and landslides that 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 kill people and liquefaction so changes in ground properties and 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 you know collapsing structures are also a significant hazard you know there's there's the kind of rarer but but really interesting issues that we see such as you know as as standing waves that are built up in lakes that can cause you know sort of localized um tsunami type damage and and in fact landslides triggered by earthquakes also cause damage from from waves when they go into bodies of water the hazard that we became very aware of in the aftermath of the china earthquake in 2008 where where we had lots of collapsing slopes the really interesting hazard that developed there was that a lot of those collapsing slopes blocked valleys and we had over 200 cases in that earthquake where large bodies of water started to build up behind the landslide deposits. And of course, the danger is that when the water over overtops the landslide, the deposit then collapses and you get an enormous debris flow going down the down the channel. In one case in 2008 uh, at a place called Tangjiashan, the Chinese government was so worried about this hazard that it evacuated a million people from the river downstream, a million people. In, in China in, in 2008, we saw this, this extraordinary event where there were about 200 landslides that were triggered that, that blocked the valley. And, and one in particular, um, a place called Tangjishan, was, um, was a very large landslide, a, a, a vast lake built up. And the, the Chinese um, authorities 
um, had to, to drain the lake. Um, but they were so worried about a collapse of that structure that they, they evacuated a million people downstream. So a million people were moved in the aftermath of an earthquake to ensure that they weren't, they weren't affected by, by the flood. And then, then of course, the, the other two hazards we should just mention, one is, is fire. Um, so fire following an earthquake in urban areas can be, can be a really significant problem, uh, especially in urban areas where the fire can spread relatively easily. And, you know, for, for example, in Tokyo, there's real concern if, if there were to be a big earthquake in Tokyo, that fire might cause very significant damage. And then, and then there's the really interesting ground deformation that's caused by the fault itself. And 2008 earthquake in China, we could actually map out the fault that, that caused the earthquake from the damage to houses. So you, you know, everywhere you went, when you crossed the fault, you would see a zone of about 100 meters on either side where, where all of the structures had been destroyed. And then the other structures were often damaged but hadn't collapsed, but just around the fault, you saw absolute devastation of the structures. And you could, could kind of identify the line of the fault from the, 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 the damage of the buildings. It was, it was really extraordinary, um, but very interesting. The Tangierstan, no, Tangierstan, and, and landslides that you talked about, there, was, there were a couple of fascinating um, aerial images mm. before and an after. When I was doing some work for the Geographical Association on critical thinking for achievement, it was, it was a course that was funded by um, the DfE. We presented students with some images a little bit like this and just, just to ask them what do they think mm. had happened. No, no more information than that, just what do you think is going on? I was quite surprised by the number of them that didn't recognise that those sorts of surfaces cleaned of vegetation were an indication of a landslide area. Right. They'd not twigged on to the idea that if that area has been left for a while, then it would be vegetated. So there's something mm. going on. So that was, a, that was a fascinating juxtaposition of those two that I, I thought would make a really interesting start to a lesson just what do you think is going on here? Because there's so much in those two images. Yes, exactly. And when when I used to do a lot of work with with undergraduate students in tutorials, I would I would often do exactly that sort of exercise. So I, I would show them an image and encourage them to read the landscape and read the image and what what is it telling telling you and sort of break it down. So in the early part of my career, I mean, for example, when I was I was working in in Nepal, we we did a lot of work around mapping the landscape and in particular trying to identify locations where there had been previous landslides. So the slopes were potentially unstable, but weren't actually unstable at that, at the time that we were there. And this this skill of of, of basically being able to, to interpret what you're seeing and looking for subtle features that, that are indicating the processes that are or have been happening happening in the landscape, I think a, is, a, is, a, is a really critical skill. And, you know, so we used to, to look out for you know, things like the, you're describing the kind of overt signals that something's going on, you know, so cracks in the, in, in the ground or stripped vegetation or trees leaning over or, or whatever. But also much more subtle indicators of, of instability, like you know, an area where where we would suddenly see a steep arcuate slope high up on the on the on the hillside, and then lower down we would see a you know a kind of lobe of material, often vegetated and and hidden, that uh, indicated that you know material had moved from one place to the other. And uh, the really interesting thing is that if you get people who are really skilled at this, you can get a kind of very consistent analysis of the landscape because people have developed the skills to, to, to interpret it. And I, I, don't, I don't think that we should, we should neglect that as a kind of core geographical skill. You know, it's so transferable into other situations of kind of piecing together different lines of evidence to give you an indication as to a narrative about what's happened in that environment, whether it's, you know, it's an urban environment or a, or a mountain or, 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 or such like. It's, it's, been a, it's been a really important skill for me in, in, my, in my research work. The GEO's Geography Quality Marks are prestigious awards which recognise, reward and promote quality and progress in geography leadership, curriculum development and learning and teaching in schools. A powerful process of self-evaluation and reflection, the frameworks incorporate the key messages of the 
2019 Education Inspection Framework, supporting schools to develop a curriculum with high quality intent, implementation and impact. As a school working towards the award, you'll receive access to support, guidance and exemplification of quality geography through our webinars and online portal and assessment and detailed feedback on your submission so that you know where to focus your next steps. You'll also become part of our international network of over 1500 geography quality mark schools. For further information or to register for the 2023 cohort, please go to our website at geography.org.uk. When I was at university, we used, uh, this This is going back such a long time, we used stereoscopic pairs mm -hmm. to identify shapes in the landscape. What's the new technique? How can you do it using um, satellite imagery and create those sorts of 3D shapes? You, you can, uh, you know, we, we do still use stereo pairs, actually. I mean, that, that, that approach is still useful. But, uh, but I think... In, in, if, if I look over the 30 years of my career, the most exciting thing that's, that's happened really is, is the development of technologies that have allowed us to visualise and understand the landscape in ways that we, we just had, had never even dreamed of. So, you know, satellite imagery has become absolutely critically important to us and you know high high resolution satellite Im imagery now will 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 basically allow us to see a one meter object um, from space and that means that you can use satellite imagery to to map landslides and cracks and ground deformation what we've then seen in the last five years or so is is the development of satellite images that are that are daily so there's a company called Planet Labs who are a California sort of Silicon Valley startup company. And they have a, have a set of satellites that image the entirety of the Earth's surface at a sort of 20 meter resolution, but every day, every day. And in, in, in my work, and in fact, you'll see this on the blog if you, if you have a look, this is, this is proven to be incredibly useful. So in fact, I, I was writing this morning about a, a landslide that happened just in the last few days in, in Alaska. And, you know, using their imagery, and they're extremely generous in, in terms of allowing me to, to, to look at their imagery, I was able to, to find an image that they collected a day after the landslide, and go back into the archive and find an image that was collected, you know, just a few days before the landslide. And so you can instantly see the changes that this landslide has caused. That's, that's absolutely amazing technology and, and really incredibly useful, especially when you then drop it into a GIS, which allows you to kind of compare one imagery to a, image to another or drape the image over, to, over the landscape and look at it from multiple different angles in 3D. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. But then, then sitting alongside that, there's been a whole series of other technologies which are incredibly useful. So one has been, you know, laser mapping, we call LIDAR data, where we're basically scanning a laser beam across the surface and building a three-dimensional model of the, of the landscape. And we found that tremendously helpful in terms of being able to, to identify change that's happening from you know from one scan to the next so that's how we map rock falls for example as we you know we scan the rock face um, and then go back a month later and scan it again and compare the two images and of course the change is where the rock falls have happened and then using algorithms we can pull out the, the scale of the change and the location and the timing and do all sorts of analysis from that you know seismic data is now is now kind of universal and we've, we've developed algorithms that allow us to identify the signal of a landslide on the seismic data. So, you know, a, a landslide, a big landslide generates what is effectively a small earthquake. It has a different characteristic from a tectonic earthquake. And that means that we can identify big landslides remotely and then use the satellite imagery to go and find them. And that's being now improved with artificial intelligence. So, you know, if you can teach the artificial intelligence to identify the signal, then the AI can be running in the background all the time. And when, when one of these events happens, it basically can flag a, a warning that someone can go and look at, and then we can go back to the satellite imagery and find it. So, you know, these technologies, these kind of geophysical technologies are just transformative in what we're able to do in terms of understanding where and when and how these landslides are happening. It's, it's been so exciting and so, so enjoyable to work with, with the different sort of groups who are developing these, um, these, these new systems. I'm quite pleased that you say that the new technologies allow you to identify somewhere where you still go. Because what would be disappointing is, is if it did it all automatically, so you never got to go to Taiwan or anywhere like that, because otherwise you wouldn't get your feet on the ground. I want to take you back to Tajiashan again, just for a minute, because you talked about a million people being evacuated. And I can see the lake that formed on that satellite imagery. But there's a story to tell there about why it didn't, why that hazard didn't turn into 
a disaster. So what's happened there? Yeah, so so in the in the aftermath of the of the earthquake and this this enormous landslide blocked blocked the valley. There were, there was really a great deal of concern. And in fact, I wrote extensively about about the hazard that was associated with that. And there, and there were there were a whole series of worries about it. Really, I mean, the, you know, the, the the core hazard here was you know was a, was a catastrophic breach. And and there there are lots of examples, in, many of them from China actually, where where the, the you know the, the lake has reached the top of the landslide water started to overflow the landslide erodes very very quickly and and essentially the lake is released in a single in a single pulse over often just a few minutes and of course what it what it then does is it picks up all the debris from from the landslide itself and then lots of debris down slope to, to turn into not just a flood but a, but actually a very very dense damaging debris flow and these things can go tens sometimes hundreds of kilometers downstream so cause enormous damage the chinese government responded impeccably it has to be said in, t- in terms of that hazard and they uh, they very actively managed the hazard by building a channel so they flew in uh, they had a, they had a big availability of a big old russian very heavy lift helicopter and they flew in earth move equipment in order to, to basically build a channel and they carried in large uh, amounts of explosives actually on the backs of soldiers in order to, to remove the boulders and over a, a very frenzied few weeks they, they they basically dug a channel down through the landslide and that meant that they, they were able to do two things one was to reduce the amount of water that actually built up and and secondly they could release it in a controlled a more controlled manner rather than allowing it to occur naturally so so they built they built a channel very very effectively and then released the water at a, at a time that was of their choosing and that that time was was basically when they'd when they'd moved everyone from the downstream area and this this was a this was an astonishing achievement actually because because of course they did this in the midst of a of the aftermath of a massive earthquake that had had, had killed you know tens of thousands of people you know maybe 70,000 people or more and, and you know all of the roads have been destroyed by landslides um there were a lot of people in in a desperate state but despite that they were able to to put the resources in in order to to mitigate this particular hazard and whilst there was quite a lot of damage downstream there were no there were no fatalities and the flood would and the debris flow was much lower than it would have been otherwise and you know this there are there are some other sort of lessons to learn from that from that earthquake so so the the chinese government were were very proactive in the kind of management and mitigation of the hazard afterwards you know so one of the things that they did is they took the vast area that had been affected by the earthquake and they 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 broke it up into to chunks of, of of area and then essentially for each of those areas they got one of the provinces in china to coordinate the reconstruction so you know so every every province in china was kind of allocated a zone within the the, the damage zone of, of of the earthquake and and supported the rebuild in 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 that area and so they they effectively deployed national resource in a very very efficient way in order to 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 drive the recovery now they they made many mistakes that was that was inevitable and there are there, there are quite a lot of things to criticize them for in terms of the way they went about it because in in particular they didn't really think through the secondary hazards properly and they didn't consult the local people as to what they actually wanted in a way that they should have done but nonetheless in terms of a kind of core approach to driving reconstruction and rehabilitation after the after the earthquake it was absolutely extraordinary i've never seen anything like it anywhere else it does sound like a a real difficult problem that that gets forgotten you talked about almost all the roads being destroyed so when you're talking about getting aid to people when you're talking about rescuing people all the normal channels that you would think of of rescuing somebody well we'll just drive up this road don't work and yes that's right i mean I, I, sometimes with with my students i've, I've talked about landslides in, in earthquakes as being like a force multiplier so something that kind of magnifies the hazard so so you know the, the landslides themselves cause a lot of damage you know the the, the roads are, are lost so that's that's a that's kind of initial impact uh, we we well know that that there is this kind of 24-hour golden period of rescuing people buried in the aftermath of an earthquake so you, you really need to get rescue teams and, and medical teams in very very quickly and and after 24 hours the survival rate of people who are buried reduces very very quickly and actually 
you know, whilst we always hear about these kind of miracle rescues a week later or whatever, the number of people who are over rescued in, in that time frame is very, very low. You know, really, most most people don't don't survive after 24 hours. So, you know, in the aftermath of an earthquake, there is a need to get people in into the area affected by the earthquake very, very quickly. And of course, the landslides damaging the roads or blocking the roads just prevent that from happening. So, you know, so lots of people who are buried aren't recovered and lots of people who are injured succumb to their injuries because they can't get the medical assistance that they need and then if you if you kind of then start to move into the the rehabilitation reconstruction phase you know the fact that that the roads are damaged and take a lot of effort to rebuild and then you know every time it you get heavy rainfall they get blocked again this has a really long-term impact in in terms of of of, um, allowing rapid recovery and, and reconstruction and it adds hugely to the cost and to the disruption to people's lives well particularly if it's going to go on for five years or more which is what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast yes that's right i mean if, if you take the 1999 chi chi earthquake in in taiwan uh, you know taiwan has this extraordinary set of alpine height mountains that runs down the 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 core of of the island i mean the island of taiwan is only the size of ireland so it's relatively small but if you imagine ireland but with the with the alps you know the the european alps running right from north to south right the way down through the middle that is essentially what taiwan is like when when the the earthquake happened and it, it, it occurred in the central uh, western side of Taiwan there were there were only three roads across the mountains um, three roads in total so you could go around the north you could go around the south well there were three roads that went went through the mountains themselves and one of these roads called the Central Cross Island Highway was was the was the most important it kind of linked the two biggest cities on the east and, and west coast and and that road was was essentially destroyed completely destroyed by the earthquake and over the subsequent five years or so the Taiwanese authorities made repeated attempts to to reopen that road and every time a typhoon came through or there was heavy rainfall there would be landslides uh, once again and you know we're now we're what 23 years later now you know so in 2022 and that road has never been reopened it's still closed now because because the level of hazard on it associated with the landslides remains too high for it to be economically reopened. So, you know, so in that case, you know, the, the, the impact of the earthquake has lasted for you know, more than two decades. And you can imagine that the communities of people who lived along that road, and there were substantial numbers, even, even those who were outside of the earthquake zone, their economic prospects have been profoundly changed because instead of being on a, on a through road, they're essentially on a cul-de-sac now. So, you know, it really is interesting, very long-term impacts. And we expect to see similar things happening if there were big earthquakes in, in, for example, in the Himalayas or on South Island of, of, of New Zealand, where, again, we expect to see a big earthquake at some point. Not to do with earthquakes, but you've just reminded me of the, the road under Mamtor, which might, you might have taken your students to see. It's, uh, that's been closed for, ooh, it must be 30 years now because it's economically just not viable to keep that one going. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's right. And the, the Mamtor landslide is a big old landslide complex. The road used to, and it was an A road, used to cross it. It, you know, the, the, the landslide moves periodically. Um, it moves a few metres at a time, but that is enough to, to make it impossible to, to reopen that road. So, it, so the road is permanently closed. It is actually a really good field trip if, if anyone's looking for a you know a, a trip to sea hazards because because the multiple kind of areas of damage of the road is very obvious it's, a, it's an easy site to get to and you can see very clearly what's happening in the landscape that's that's causing the damage and there's no prospect of reopening that road and of course with with climate change increasing the frequency of these extreme rainfall events we would expect that landslide to continue to move well into the future yes it's um I do remember driving this as well. It's uh, they obviously <laughs> kept it going at one time, but uh, it's it is an amazing, it is an amazing landscape now. I think I'm going to pull it together now because uh, I'm going to. While I've got a recognised leader in the study of management of landslides, I'm going to ask you how to sum up the work for teachers and for students. What what do we understand now about the mechanisms? What's what things have gone well? Where do we need to, to continue to work to make it better? Well, you know, landslides are, are complex events. And I, I think one of the things that, that I learned over the course of my career is, is that the ultimate outcome for the people is this, this really interesting combination of the underlying hazards and the processes that are driving it and, uh, and, you know, and 
the triggers, you know, the heavy rainfall or, or an earthquake or human activity. And then, you know, the way that the landscape responds, but most importantly, really, is, is around vulnerability. And you know, the, the things that we do as humans that make the consequence uh, of the event what they are. And I, I think that, that you know, if, if, if I was going into starting my career again, I would, I would be putting much more emphasis really on trying to understand this kind of interaction between humans and the things that humans do. Some of them directly affected, affecting the slope, you know, so building a road or building a reservoir or whatever, but, but some of them actually just directly affecting vulnerability. So, you know, poor communities, communities with low levels of resilience, communities that, that kind of, uh, because of the way that the, the society is structured are adversely affected by the hazard. And that, you know, the consequence is, is the result of those two things kind of interacting. And, and I think the big, the big challenge for us going forward really is not so much around the physical hazard, although we've still got a lot to learn, but it's actually about understanding that human physical interaction and the way that we can effectively change the structure of society or communities or whatever, such that they build genuine, genuine resilience. And I think, you know, for me, an, an absolute kind of key part of this is to understand that if you, I mean, if you take a, a mountain community in, in Nepal, you often see people choosing to live on landslides. And the reason that they choose to live on landslides is that the location that they're settling in Yes, it adds to their risk associated with the physical hazard, but it might reduce their risk in all sorts of other things that they're doing in their daily life. You know, so, you know, if you, if you choose to live by a road, which is landslide prone, yes, you're increasing your risk to landslides, but you might be reducing your risk associated with access to work or education or to health. You might be able to, you know, to, to basically open a tea shop or, or whatever that you can sell to people who are using the, the roads. And so it, it, it gives you economic resilience. And so, so people are in a, in a very sophisticated way, they're kind of balancing their risk portfolio. And we tend to think of the risk in purely in terms of, of the landslide, but those people are thinking about the risk purely in terms of this kind of wide portfolio of things that they've got going on. So if we, if we want to build the resilience of those people to landslides, we need to build that resilience to the range of hazards that are going on simultaneously. And the, and the, the resilience to landslides must be a part of their risk portfolio, not something in isolation. And I, I think understanding properly that problem and thinking through the ways to make communities resilient in that context, that really is the kind of cutting edge stuff of, of research in the future. And that's where I think the big progress will be made. And that's where I would go if I was starting my research again. Fascinating. That's been absolutely brilliant. Uh, we will do links with the podcast to your, yep. and I think to that, that talk, if you're happy, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just to flag, I'm I'm doing a an inaugural lecture here um, on I think it's on the 11th of October, and and that one will also be videoed. Um, it'll be it'll be a different lecture to the one that that I gave in in Sheffield, but I don't know how, quite how the timing works in terms of when this will go out. I'll be talking about probably in more detail some of the issues that we've talked through here. Um, in that talk as well. So if you want to flag that to people, then that, you know either as part of this podcast or um, or subsequently, then then that would be really good too. Excellent. That's been an absolutely fascinating hour listening to you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank well, you. likewise too. Thanks. Thanks for the questions. They've been very insightful, and and I really appreciate the opportunity to be involved. I hope I hope you know it it goes well when you put it out to to the wider community. 